The Tom Woods Show, episode 1327. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, by far one of the most dangerous economic misconceptions of the 20th century is that the financial crisis of 2008 was caused by deregulation. Unregulated capitalism led us here. It's dangerous because the next time this happens, they're going to come up with even worse solutions. So we got to get this one right. And you can if you read my free ebook, The Deregulation Boogeyman. Pick it up at regulationmyths.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. We're talking about the so-called Green New Deal proposal that has been circulating around Washington, D.C. and is being talked about all over the place. It's associated in a lot of people's minds with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but there are many people who support it. And I thought, you know who would be a good fellow to talk to about this? Our old friend Alex Epstein, whom we've talked to a couple times before, who's the author of the book The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And he also has a podcast called Power Hour, where he discusses issues relating to energy with leading thinkers on the subject. He is the president and founder of the Center for Industrial Progress, which you can visit at industrialprogress.com. I'll have all this stuff linked at tomwoods.com slash 1327. Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I mean, come on, this Green New Deal. How am I not going to talk to Alex Epstein about this? It's uh, The thing is taking off, not legislatively. I, I'm, certainly, it's not going to get signed into law, but wow, it went from zero to being widely discussed in almost no time at all. So what I'm going to do is link on the show notes page, which is tomwoods.com slash 1327, to the actual Green New Deal program as it's been laid out so that people can look through it for themselves. It's interesting that it's not just about energy. There's also a lot of stuff about gender and racial justice and and living wages and jobs for all and – And one of the points that Bob Murphy and I were making, Alex, is that if you really thought in your heart of hearts that the world was going to end, as Ocasio-Cortez just said the other day, the world's going to end in about 12 years. If you really thought that, wouldn't you say, look, I would – the thing I would love to see in the world is all the racial and gender justice I can get. But right now with the world about to end, I really have to put everything on the back burner and just focus on – not letting the world end. So when you then come out with 87 social welfare goals that you also have, it makes me doubt that you really, like if there were an asteroid coming to earth and you were also talking about, you know, I think the minimum wage should be $27 an hour. We would think you were a lunatic. Well, okay, we'll, we'll deal with that later, but right now there's an asteroid coming. Yeah. I mean, whenever, you know, whenever somebody talks about a problem and they're in a position of having political power or seeking political power, There's always the question of, are they really concerned about the problem and the most efficient way of solving it? Or is the problem for them a solution to their desire to have more power? And for the test that you applied, which is a focus test, are they actually focused on the most existentially threatening problem in their own view? That's a good test. My own test for the energy and climate stuff in particular, I just wrote on Twitter about this, and I forget exactly what I said, but it's in effect... My simple test is, do you avidly support the decriminalization of nuclear power? Because if, you're, if you believe that nuclear power should be banned and that's the most scalable form of non-carbon power, 
then clearly you're not serious. And it's probably a surprise to nobody that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the whole Green New Deal are advocates of the banning, the continued, not even just the criminalization, but the full banning of nuclear power in favor of solar and wind. So that, that to me is just an instant reveal. If, if the other 80 things weren't, that there's a desire for power here not to solve a specific problem. Let's say a brief word about that, if we may. I remember when I was growing up in the 80s, I lived in Massachusetts, which is not too far from the Seabrook nuclear power plant in New Hampshire. So we heard an awful lot about nuclear power in my day, and a lot of it very negative. I was in the gifted and talented class in school. We got a tour of the Seabrook nuclear power plant. Sure seemed pretty good to me. I didn't have any problem with it. But we were hearing stories about Three Mile Island from, you know, from years earlier. And the impression was left with us that nuclear power is unsafe. And secondly, we don't really know what to do with the waste. And so that's how they plausibly claim that they really do care for human welfare. And it's because of that care that they don't want to have nuclear power. Is there a good answer to that? Well, yeah, I mean, the the answer to that is to actually look at the nature of nuclear power and how safe it is with the waste as one aspect of its safety. So the the easiest way, when you have a technology that's been around for a while at any kind of scale and with fossil fuels and nuclear, we have those with hydro, we have that kind of data, we can look and see, okay, which technologies are the safest per unit of energy generated. So per unit of energy generated, how many people die? And nuclear power is by far, by far the safest. And the physics of it are because nuclear power cannot explode like the other forms of energy can. Obviously, fossil fuels can combust, and then hydro can't explode in that way, but a dam can explode, which might be the most dangerous possibility of all. All these things are really good technology, so they shouldn't be banned for that reason. But it's it's particularly ridiculous that nuclear is singled out. And the reason is because the hypothetical mechanism of its danger is something that's kind of harder to understand and has been misrepresented. So meltdown is represented as, oh, this is the scariest thing in the world versus no, I'd rather be next to a facility that could melt down, which would give me days and days and days to react versus one that can explode where I'd be dead uh, immediately. So that, that's the fundamental of it. And then the nature of the waste is just, this is not anywhere near the most hazardous substance that we deal with. And without getting into all the specifics of the waste, the fact that we have been dealing with it for decades and decades and decades, and nobody is really having a problem, that's an indication that there is no fundamental safety problem. And thus, for anyone who's familiar with these issues, the safety is just a, it's just a rationalization for attacking nuclear which fundamentally the green movement is against because it's A, a very effective source of industry, which they tend to be against, and then B, it's one that involves manipulating nature in a fundamental way. And the green movement is a deeply technophobic movement, despite its pretenses. That's a whole subject, but essentially their core idea is we shouldn't change nature. So they particularly object when we figure out how to change nature at fundamental levels. I'm looking at the plan, and we won't go through all seven of their goals. Uh, I want to just go through the the key ones and the ones that you, you would want to discuss in particular. But I can't help mentioning something right below the seven goals. It's just it's it's frankly downright Soviet the kind of language that we encounter in this plan because it says. The plan for a Green New Deal shall recognize that a national industrial economic mobilization of this scope and scale is a historic opportunity to virtually eliminate poverty in the United States 
and to make prosperity, wealth, and economic security available to everyone participating in the transformation. That's a bizarre statement. So in other words, they're saying here we have an extraordinary world historic emergency, which you would think therefore in order to combat it, we're going to have to expend an enormous amount of resources and we're going to have to be temporarily satisfied with a lower standard of living. They're claiming that by expending all these resources, we'll get richer. So this would be like, again, if an asteroid were hurling toward Earth and they all said, oh, preparing for the asteroid is going to make us richer. And then let's say the asteroid just burned up in the atmosphere. They'd be disappointed because they'd say, well, I guess we're going to be poorer now that we don't have to plan for the asteroid coming. This just shows we're not There's no way we can be dealing with people who are just dispassionately assessing evidence and thinking according to sound theory, right? I mean, I'm sorry for going on this soliloquy, but I I just, I look at that. What what am I supposed to draw from that? There's a definite excitement that people have about the prospect of disaster. And you can see the number one analogy that's being used right now is World War II. So the idea is, well, we need another World War II. That's exciting to people because it's, well, this is some higher cause that we can all get involved with and we can get status and somebody someday someone will call us the greatest generation whatnot. Uh, leaving all, aside all of the wrong views about World War II that I think people have, th- it's just, in fact, this is an occasion where d- there's just an enormous, almost incalculable loss of human life. And not only that, but a huge amount of resources, as you're indicating, to deal with the whole war. So this is not something where... This is the opposite of something where we want it to happen. And thus, if it is happening or if there's anything like this happening, there should be a deep amount of sadness and really trying to figure out, okay, how do we make the best of a horrible situation? But again, there's this issue of, is somebody concerned about the problem because they're really concerned about the problem or is the problem for them an opportunity for them to get control? Let's go through now the uh, some of these. But the very first one is is... It's hard to decide actually which one of these is the most ambitious, but it says uh, the, the first goal is dramatically expand existing renewable power sources and deploy new production capacity with the goal of meeting 100% of national power demand through renewable sources. Now, remember their target window here is to accomplish all these goals in 10 years. Can you comment on the plausibility of that particular goal? Sure. But I just want to, when people, t- it's interesting, this issue of 100% renewable, because it's some, I, I'm, I do a lot of work in the, the messaging around energy, and it's interesting that this has pulled very highly. And I think one reason is because it sounds aspirational versus just being complete coercion. Because 100% renewable, what does that mean? That just means that we are mandating one particular form of energy technology, which usually refers to just solar and wind because they're usually against hydro, let alone nuclear and fossil fuels, and then we're forbidding everything else. So what do we know in life when you mandate one technology in a field and you ban the others? Well, you you always have the phenomenon of you, so let's say in, in the realm of building, we mandated renewable wood. We say every building has to be wood. Well, what's going to happen is you lose out on all the situations where much better materials would be the solution. And then you can often be stuck with something really bad, like skyscrapers made out of wood, probably not a good idea, all sorts of fire hazards. The the status of solar and wind right now is pretty comparable to the status of wood as a building material. In fact, it's, it's 
much less often actually the best solution because it has this fundamental problem of what's called the intermittency problem, which because the sun and the wind are not available most of the time and because they're, when they are available, they're available very erratically, they have to depend on basically 100% life support from a reliable energy system, usually coming from fossil fuels. And then you're paying for the reliable energy system, the unreliable energy system, and then you're using the reliable energy system inefficiently because you're basically running it like stop and go traffic. You're, you're constantly adjusting your burning of the fossil fuels up and down to account for the erratic production of the wind and solar. So it's just a complete mess. And everywhere this is used, it dramatically increases prices. So in Germany, you have 5%, let's say of around 5%, maybe a little less, of total energy coming from these sources, and yet your electricity prices for consumers are doubling. So this is something where, in general, it's a horrible idea to mandate any technology, let alone mandate the worst technology that has dramatically negative consequences on a small scale, let alone mandate it on an impossible scale. That is, there is no technological solution whereby solar and wind and batteries with those combined can somehow deliver power to a modern economy. So you're literally mandating something that is currently impossible and at much smaller scales, incredibly destructive. All right, let's go down to, um, well, I've got to get to the greenhouse gas one. So let's let's skip down to four and five. I'll read them together. Eliminating greenhouse gas emissions from the manufacturing, agricultural, and other industries, including by investing in local-scale agriculture in communities across the country, and eliminating greenhouse gas emissions from repairing and improving transportation and other infrastructure and upgrading water infrastructure to ensure universal access to clean water. So what what do you when you hear that what do you think? Well, maybe I just step back and, and think about what's going on here because what's unique about the country we live in is there's just this rec or at least the founding of it is that there's this recognition that the way human beings should organize socially is that they should be free, which means that they should not coerce each other. They should they should live on the basis of voluntary interaction. And thus, you know, when they're able to do that, all sorts of amazing things follow. But the core of it is that they are allowed to act on their own ideas and then others are elect- allowed to act on their ideas. And then we can interact when it makes sense and not interact when it makes sense. And in general, that makes life go really, really well. Unfortunately, there is not much of a discussion of freedom as a principle of social organization today. And unfortunately, it's, it's not happening with the Republicans. And although I think the current administration has done, it's actually done, I think, its best things in energy, there's not a pro-freedom discussion. And the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because when problems occur, there's no longer in people's mind the possibility that the problems are occurring, that real problems are occurring because of a lack of freedom. It's only that the problems are occurring because of a lack of sufficient control by a particular bunch of status-seeking political types. So the whole premise of this thing is that freedom is not a value, that freedom is inappropriate, that it's unimportant, and thus that anybody with any idea for how anybody else can improve has every right and even should be admired in terms of dictating everything in their lives. Because what you just read is really translated into Cortez and others should be totalitarian. This is just a set of totalitarian rules, and it's important to classify it that way. So yeah, some of these totalitarian rules are based on just absurdity, and some of them could be done 
uh, but be costly. But the, the whole framework of this is that your life does not belong to you. It belongs to us and we're going to dictate all of these things. And my view of when you have a serious problem, the totalitarian approach is not the way to approach it. If you had a serious problem, let's say with CO2 emissions, you would want to find what's a pro-freedom approach to deal with it. So I, I just project the whole premise of this thing that when we have a problem, we should be looking toward this totalitarian solution. And of course, when people do have a totalitarian solution, it will always be insanely irrational because it is insanely irrational for any small group of people to try to dictate the actions of hundreds of millions of other people. Let's say, though, you had a situation where, let's take them, let's take these folks at their word. Let's just assume that they actually believe the situation is as catastrophic as they say. And they'll say, it's very nice for Alex Epstein to tell us about how nice it would be to have non-coercive solutions. But, you know, when we fought the Nazis, we didn't have a non-coercive solution. We uh -huh. drafted people into that army and we fought. And so likewise, we're going to have to draft all our industrial resources and our people into this fight. What is the plausible alternative, they would say? Well, so so in a with, with a freedom philosophy, the idea is when you have problems that require a government, I definitely believe those problems exist, but those you, you categorize those problems fundamentally as rights violations, that somebody is violating somebody else's rights. And there is at least the hypothetical possibility of these kinds of collective or aggregate rights violations. That is where people alone doing something, it doesn't do much, but in the aggregate, there's some sort of big shared risk. So th this would be with CO2 levels, that if CO2 levels at a certain level are dangerous for everybody, but then the focus is, okay, yeah, how do we, how do we deal with that while also dealing with every other aspect of human flourishing? Because lowering CO2 levels is not an end in itself. It's at best, at best, a means to an end of human beings having better lives. So we need to, and human beings having better lives in all these different areas requires a whole bunch of freedom of thought and freedom of action so that we can be really productive. So the key would just be to figure out, okay, how do you isolate the CO2 issue as a rights violation and have the government in some way restrict that while not completely destroying or getting involved in everything else? And this is the, these are the kinds of, you know, depending on how serious it was, you'd have to think of different things. But what you would need to happen really in terms of result is you would be looking for the emergence of a low-cost source of non-carbon energy. That's the only way you would really do it. And the biggest potential there is nuclear power. And that's, of course, the one that these totalitarian green movement people are against. So you could talk about what, are the, what would be the different ways to do it if you had a catastrophe. But the key is you'd want to set it up in a way where free minds could pursue the absolute best non-carbon courses of action, because that's the key to doing to reducing anything and also having human flourishing. And instead here, they're forbidding people from pursuing nuclear power, and then they're mandating that they pursue this kind of green power. So if, yeah, you do not want totalitarian mindset when you have these big problems. Another one of the features they've got here is funding massive investment in the drawdown of greenhouse gases. Can do you, would you know what they're talking about there? It's it's too ambiguous because it could mean a bunch of, of things. Because it could mean, I mean, when you're talking about greenhouse gases, you can talk about reducing their production, or then you could talk about somehow capturing them right. in the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, so and, and so drawdown is ambiguous and and it could refer to um, either of these, but the, the 
I just want to point out how insane this is to say, I mean, insane is too charitable, but, but that there's no recognition of the value of energy to human life in this. And the fact that you have billions of people in the world who have almost no energy right now, and that itself is a crisis. And it's part of the broader, still present crisis of, of poverty that capitalism to the extent it exists is alleviating. So there's no real, there's no recognition of the value of energy. And then there's no recognition of the value of nuclear power or the challenges that exist with these intermittent forms of energy. I just want to make clear, these have never worked. Like as in they have never worked ever in terms of providing people cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. So they're, they're, and they're not particularly even promising in that, but it's really, really bad to even mandate, you know, 70 years in the future, something that has never worked. But to talk about it as 10 years in the future, it's, it's so homicidal that nobody can take it serious. It almost has that protection that it's so insane that people can just say, oh, well, your heart's in the right place and yeah, it's not practical. Versus from my perspective, taking away people's energy is not having your heart in the right place. Well, I guess we need to say something about the elephant in the room here because what they're all going to come back with is climate change, climate change, climate change. And this is a big problem. And of course, they've made clear what the allowable opinion, range of allowable opinion on that is. And so if you even hesitate in supporting a radical program like this, they're probably inclined to call you a so-called climate denier. They have a whole Orwellian apparatus of language prepared to be used against you. So I, I think I'd like to ask you, I realize this is a topic you've had to talk about over and over and over again, but I mean, it must be like interviewing Led Zeppelin and asking him about Stairway to Heaven. You know, I am begging you not to ask me this, but I have to. Tell, oh, no, I'm happy to talk about it. All right, well, tell me the way you think about climate change and what what's are the correct way we should look at that question about uh, the problem that we face to the extent there is one and what should be done about it to the extent that anything should be done about it. Okay, so I'll just tell you, here's here's how I think of the broader issue. So the, the concern is that there's this ubiquitous product in our civilization, namely fossil fuel energy, and it's potentially having significant negative impacts on our environment. That's kind of the situation, and particularly people are concerned about rising CO2 levels from CO2 emissions from that form of energy. So that's certainly a legitimate kind of thing to investigate, particularly because in a laboratory, at least, CO2 emissions lead to increasing the CO2 level leads to a certain amount of warming, although importantly, it leads to a declining level of warming. That is, each molecule of CO2 warms less than the last. So when you, it's, it's a legitimate thing to explore this, but then if you're exploring it, and you're exploring different policies to deal with it, I think what you need to do is you need to look at, okay, with different policies, they're going to have two major effects. One is when we're legislating on energy, one is the policies are going to affect the amount of energy that's available in the world. And then two is they're going to affect the amount of CO2 that exists in the atmosphere. I think anyone who's concerned at all about CO2 emissions would say, okay, well, we want policies that increase the amount of energy available, and that decrease the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So I think it's important to think in this way, even if you don't think CO2 is a serious, is that big a deal. And I, I don't personally think it's that uh, big a deal. But I think that if you are thinking about it, you really have to think about, okay, what policies are going to lead to a lot of energy availability while decreasing CO2 emissions? That, that should be 
the kind of priority. And that's why I keep going back to nuclear. If you're serious about this, then nuclear power should be fundamentally exciting. And there aren't that many fundamentally exciting things because we don't have that many even plausible ways of generating energy. So that's that's how I think of the, the policy piece of it. Morally, I think of it in terms of, I, I integrate all of this stuff, whether it's energy availability or CO2 levels, I integrate this all under the perspective of human flourishing. So the question is, how do fossil fuels affect the amount of energy available? How do they affect CO2? And then how does all of that put together affect human flourishing? And the, the short version of it is, is that people dramatically underestimate the value of energy availability. So like energy being cheap, plentiful, and reliable, that makes every industry more productive, that makes every human being more empowered. It's so fundamentally valuable to quality of life that people have no appreciation, don't, don't appreciate the, the degree of it. And it's particularly important and neglected with regard to environment, because having a lot of energy allows us to take a naturally hostile environment and make it a lot more friendly. And in the realm of climate, it allows us to take a naturally dangerous climate and make it far safer. So when we're looking at the impacts of fossil fuels, we don't just look at the impacts of CO2 on the livability of our climate. We have to look at the impacts of having a lot more energy on the availability on the um, livability of our climate. And what I talk about in the moral case for fossil fuels is that if you look at how safe climate is actually becoming or how dangerous it's becoming, it actually becomes safer and safer and safer as we use more fossil fuels. So as we make more energy available and we increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, over time, there's a dramatic trend toward climate becoming safer, let alone the rest of life becoming good. And the reason is, is because it's so important to the livability of the climate to have a lot of energy. And the impact of CO2 on the climate is real to some extent, but it's just pretty insignificant. So it's sort of like discovering a cure to a disease. Like if you discover a cure to a disease and the cure makes the disease 10% more prevalent or even 50% more prevalent, but you can cure it, then then that's great. You still want the cure. And energy is in a large part the cure to climate danger. It, it Even if we are making the climate slightly more hostile with CO2, and, and I don't think that's provable, but even if we are, our ability to master the climate, natural or man-made changes, is so great that it completely overwhelms that. So my view is that if you care about climate livability, and that that's what I care about from a human flourishing perspective, you should want us to be producing more energy and more energy from fossil fuels. So climate change can be real, but it can still be insignificant in comparison to the benefits of fossil fuels. And that's what I think. Folks, we're going to take a quick break so I can tell you once again the continuing story of bad luck Ichabod. Poor bad luck Ichabod. He knew there was always a chance the pink slip could come, but he never prepared for that day. And when it came, he had nothing to fall back on. Don't be like bad luck Ichabod. Join Skillshare, which is like the Netflix of online learning. One membership gets you access to over 25,000 classes, teaching you almost any skill you can imagine, from audio editing to graphic design to accounting to finance. Whatever it is, there's a course on there for you on Skillshare. My own kids love it, and you will too. Well, you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Tom Woodshow listeners two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash WoodsFree. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash WoodsFree to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash WoodsFree. 
how do you feel like the general and this is an oddball question but you know I know you're would you describe yourself as an objectivist sure okay do you think that libertarians whom no doubt you have a lot of interaction with are correctly explaining the situation with fossil fuels and energy in general or are they are they missing the point are they are they too wonkish what what do you think the problem is well i think the problem is the is the same with everyone which is although in different forms which is that they're not looking at environmental issues from within a human flourishing perspective so in my, certainly in the objectivist view and in, in my view environmental quality is an aspect of human flourishing. That's not really an objectivist term, but it, it's more or less, you know, Ayn Rand's idea is the individual should should flourish, should achieve happiness, should survive in a very like deep and successful and profound way. And but the idea is the environment is not something above human flourishing. So environmental issues are should be thought of as part of human flourishing. And the thing is that when you put environment above human flourishing, you run into all of these different kinds of problems because then in effect you have this like a, a godlike thing that we are supposed to sacrifice to. And we think of it, we, we act like, oh, the climate is an end in itself and it's bad to impact the climate versus from a human flourishing perspective, our impact on climate, that's just one impact among many. And the key thing is we should impact climate or as much or as little as necessary to improve human flourishing more broadly. That That's the moral perspective on it. So if I think, if you give me a trade and I say, okay, we can make it over the next hundred years, like three degrees warmer on average and storms are a little more frequent. This is all hypothetical, but everyone has a lot more energy and everything in life is better, including they're way more comfortable because they can deal with any kind of climate much more easily. Like I regard that as a great thing from a human flourishing perspective, but from a naturist or green perspective, you just think it's wrong to change anything. So the whole focus is, no, we shouldn't be changing anything. Let's stop changing things. And those people tend to be indifferent to all the benefits of changing nature and to be apocalyptic about changing nature and also to just have this view that we have this duty not to change it. I, I think that in general, libertarians tend to be way too morally conventional. They don't tend to think about moral issues enough. This is a very broad generalization. But as a result, they've become conventionally environmentalist in, in the sense of, of believing that we should be minimizing our impact on nature as a moral goal. And, and I don't believe that's a moral goal. We should be maximizing human flourishing as a moral goal. And that includes maximizing our positive impact on nature and minimizing our, our negative impact. All right, Alex, one final thing, and that has to do with one of the reasons that somebody like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez might have appeal, or frankly, even Donald Trump might have appeal, is that you know, however flawed they are, they're trying to hold out some kind of a hopeful message, that they've got some great world they're trying to bring us to. And if our response is just, well, that's a crummy idea that'll never work, <laughs> it just doesn't have the same effect on people. So uh, how, what can we do to, to shape our message so that we're not just that cranky old uncle, but you know, we have something that's, that's um, uh, inspiring too? This is a really important thing to, to think about. I, um, over the past couple of years, I do a lot of consulting work on communications, I, and I've developed a little framework I call arguing to 100. And you can just imagine an x-axis in front of you, and it goes from negative 100 to 100 with a zero in the middle. 100 is the highest good, 
and negative 100 is the lowest evil. And my contention is that in most discussions, the person who defines 100 and negative 100 will win. So for example, leaving aside all the merits or demerits involved, President Trump reframed the whole axis, the whole debate from an, a debate where 100 was equality and negative 100 was inequality. He really turned it from one where 100 was American greatness, make America great again, and then negative 100 was American decline. And you can see he made so much progress with that. You can, um, th there are a whole bunch of other examples. If you look at someone like Martin Luther King, Steve Jobs, they all do their own version of arguing to 100. And with the Green Movement, they have this argument to 100, and Green New Deal is an instance of this, where the ideal 100 is minimizing our impact on nature, and then negative 100 is something like having a lot of impact or polluting. It's, it's pretty vague what they think the negative 100 is, uh, but it certainly involves fossil fuels. So anything we go in the direction of fossil fuels is negative 100. And my view about what's right and also what's effective is that we should be thinking of different 100s that are based on human flourishing, based on how can we make life as good as possible for as many people as possible. And this certainly applies to all kinds of different arguments for freedom, because freedom is ultimately good because it's the right social conditions for human beings to flourish. So I just recommend in general that people think about what is my 100 and how does that connect to human flourishing? And I hope that that perspective leads people to a lot of innovation in messaging, but not a kind of like ad agency, superficial type thing, but really thinking about, no, what are my values and how can I communicate those in a way where the realization of those values is inspiring? So in the realm of energy, for example, we might talk about something like empowerment, you know, human empowerment, American empowerment, policy-wise, we might talk about energy freedom or energy liberation, but whatever it is or whatever combination of things, we should really be thinking about, okay, what's our 100 that we are really excited about? And then what's our negative 100 that we think is really bad and destructive? Not let someone else frame it and then say, oh, no, your 100 won't work. I call that arguing to zero. You just try to shoot holes in their 100 or you try to plug holes in your negative 100. That's that's arguing to zero and that's a losing approach. And if you're right, then it's an immoral approach to let the immoral side frame and win the debate. Uh, tell us something about the podcast that you had, I don't know for what the situation was, but more or less discontinued or had just uh, <laughs> gone out of use for a while that has been resurrected. And and by the way, has such a clever title given the subject matter, Power Hour. That's Who thought of that? Uh, I, I think I thought of it. I, I started Power Hour in 2011, and one of the goals was to be able to meet all sorts of different people in energy because nobody I'd been doing work on it for a few years, but nobody knew who I was. And I thought if I had a podcast, maybe I'd get to talk to people. And that was true to a shocking extent. I'm still amazed that people would come on this podcast that had no following at the beginning. And the, the original concept was for me to be able to ask energy experts and different kinds of environment experts different questions so that I could learn and so listeners could learn. And it was it was really, really useful, but I don't know, I'd got I got I got tired of the the format of it and I could also learn the things on my own much more easily. Uh, so then I, I uh, took time off podcasting and then I started something which I still have called the Human Flourishing Project, which is a little podcast about human flourishing. And I do that every week. But I thought with Power Hour uh, I wanted to bring it back. And in particular I wanted 
it to bring it back because I thought that the human flourishing perspective and the pro-freedom perspective I had was really necessary on a week-to-week basis for certain energy developments. And then at this, it, it's also relevant to me because I'm I'm redoing the moral case for fossil fuels. It's being like completely overhauled for release later this year, the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0. And thus, it's, it's a fun way to talk about some of those concepts and make sure that I'm really connected to these different things, whether it's the Green New Deal or carbon tax or all these other things that are coming up. Well, that's tremendous. So how do people, obviously they can just type in Power Hour over on iTunes, but how do they follow you? What's your website, stuff like that? Yeah, I think if you just search Power Hour Alex Epstein on iTunes, that'll work. Uh, the easiest way to follow my stuff is just to go to industrialprogress.com and then to sign up for our newsletter, which if you like what I said today, there's a good chance you'll like that. That's probably the easiest way. Uh, and then, of course, I'm on all the social media channels, which you can just search for Alex Epstein. And there aren't that many Alex Epsteins, so you'll find me. But uh, if I had a choice, I would have people go on the newsletter and get those updates every week. All right, you're smart to get people on your newsletter list. That is exactly what they should do. So I'm going to recommend they do that. So I'll have links to this stuff for everybody's convenience uh, at tomwoods.com slash 1327. All right, well, let's uh, let's see what happens. Uh, unfortunately, AOC, as they're calling her, has uh, a lot of ambition and, and a lot of media sympathy. So we'll just have to work all the harder. So thanks for what you're doing, Alex. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks a lot, Tom. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Now, if you're not on my email list, you've missed my commentaries on this whole Covington High School versus uh, Nathan Phillips, the Native American guy situation. And let me tell you something. I've written some darn good stuff on this, and you're missing out on it if you're not on my email list. I had somebody the other day ask me how to get on the list, and I thought I have just failed as a marketer if people don't know how to get on the list. Uh, If you go to tomwoods.com, right at the top, there's a little button you can click to get added to the list. But also, you can get a free ebook. If you go to any of the ebook pages, so we've got bernieiswrong.com, we've got yourfriendsarewrong.com, ourenemythefed.com, againstthemob.com, nostateeducation.com. There's a lot of stuff and a lot of ways you can get on my email list and a lot of great ebooks you can get. You can get every single one of them if you want. Get every single one of them. Doesn't mean you get added to the list eight different times. You're only on there once. But you can get all those different ebooks and I add you to my list and you get good stuff. I mean, there's people like being on my email. Nobody unsubscribes from my list, right? You'd have to be mentally deranged to do that. I do need to warn you, by the way, that no matter which list of mine you're on or both, that one and my entrepreneur list at pathstoincome.com, check your spam folder because sometimes the emails, inevitably, when you're sending a mass email, it, it can wind up in a spam folder. The spam folder does not know the definition of spam. Definition of spam is unsolicited email or email on a topic other than what you signed up for. Well, my emails are neither of those. They are indeed solicited and they are on precisely the topic that people signed up for. So it's very annoying, but once in a while, for some people, they wind up in the spam folder. So check that out, because you may have some golden nuggets in there waiting for you. Anyway, that is your homework assignment for uh, the immediate future here, is to hop on my email list by getting one of those great books. The most recent one is Our Enemy the Fed at OurEnemyTheFed.com. I got a couple of juicy ones coming out before the summer of 2019. Oh boy, you are not gonna believe the domain names I bought (laughs) that were available. Oh, they are fantastic. All right, that's it for today, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. See you tomorrow. 
Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.